morning. And happy Mother's Day. Welcome to Barah Ministries, an intimate local Christian church with worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. And at Barah Ministries, we know this truth, that Jesus Christ is God. As Lord, he is 100% deity. He is God the Son. As he is also 100% human, just like you and me, and his name is Jesus Christ. The Lord, God the Son, became flesh, Jesus Christ, and he lived among us. And he is the uniquely born one, the God-man. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the Savior of the whole world, and he is the Jewish Messiah. And those who make Barah Ministries their spiritual home are Christians. We are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with the Lord Because Christianity is a relationship and not a religion. And the Lord Jesus Christ is a person. He's not a thing. He's not a concept. And just as we do with anyone whom we love, we spend time getting to know the Lord through the study of his word. Because you can't get to know the Lord without knowing his mind. And the Bible is his exact thinking. A friend of mine asked me yesterday, what do you tell people who say that the Bible is just a book written by a bunch of guys. I said, I'd take them right into the Bible and tell them what the Bible says about itself. What does the Bible say about itself? It says, no prophecy of Scripture was ever a matter of one's private interpretation, and no prophecy of Scripture ever came as a result of human will. But men carried along by God the Holy Spirit spoke directly from the exact thinking of the God, the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell them we have the mind of Christ. The Bible describes itself as the mind of Christ. So, you know, if, now that what I just said is either true or it's false. It's either true or it's false. You decide. And if you decide that it's false, then what's your source of truth? CNN? Fox News? The newspapers? The liars? Who are lying to you to make you believe that suddenly... Just out of nowhere, your body completely lost its ability to fight off a virus? My body has been fighting off viruses for 65 years. When my sons were born, I passed them around to everybody. You know how a lot of moms get all protective of the kid and they want to, oh, I want to protect them from the microbes in the air. Yeah, fat chance. They they breathe in about a, a million microbes a second. Fat chance. I passed my kids around to everybody and said, cough on them. You know, rub your nose and rub it all in their face. And so my kids were sick a lot in the first couple of years. They're the healthiest people I know. Why? Because their body learned to fight off disease. That's how you learn to fight off disease. You don't learn to fight off disease by washing your hands. That keeps you from fighting off disease because your body doesn't know how to deal with dirt and germs. And, you know, the kids now, everything the kids now do is sanitary. You know, you sit at your little computers with your little controllers and and all that. We were out in the dirt, man. We were eating dirt. We're laying out, rolling around on rocks. Come back in the house. We're all dirty. Oh, my mom would say, get get those clothes off of you. You're dirty. Go to the laundromat. Come back when you're finished. (laughs) So anyway. I don't know why I started that. I just, I just had to go off. You know, I'm sitting in my house all by myself all week. I had to go off. That's all it was. Well, anyway, today's Bible lesson, what's the real problem with sexual immorality? What's the real problem with sexual immorality? You know, last week we talked about, you know, what's wrong with visiting a prostitute every now and then? You know, in God's mind, a lot. 
in our mind, nothing. Why? Because our standards have been completely obliterated. We don't have any standards. Everything's okay with us. But that's not how God sees it. So, most people would contend that the reason God forbids sexual immorality, and more specifically, sex for hire, prostitution, either male or female, is because the Lord doesn't want us to have any fun. Why is that? Because we've learned to define fun the way Satan defines fun. And Satan defines fun as anything that destroys you. That's the way Satan defines fun. Anything that deceives you into going into it, and then as soon as you get into it, it destroys you, and then he leaves the bill for you. That's Satan, the enemy of God. Well, Nothing could be further from the truth. The Lord wants us to have a lot of fun. And in today's lesson, we'll find out the one thing the Lord knows that we prefer to ignore is that sexual immorality is one of the worst of sins. And so in today's lesson, we'll find out why. And as we do every month also, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. We'll honor the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we'll learn that his work at the cross covered all of our sins with his forgiveness. His work at the cross covered all of our sins with forgiveness. Isn't it nice to have all of your sins wrapped in this cloak called forgiveness? Well, happy Mother's Day. Our opening song doesn't need much introduction since you hear it every year. At Barah Ministries Mother's Day. It's a tribute to mothers everywhere. June is laughing because she gets sick of the song. Because, you know, she's got to change it up. You don't have to change this song up. The song's amazing. And I don't think that there are lyrics that better describe what it's like to have a female parent who actually does the job only she can do. I had such a female parent. A woman who was mother and father to me. And these words say it all. Mama, Mama, you know I love you. Mama, Mama, you're the queen of my heart. Your love is like tears from the stars. Mama, I just want you to know loving you is like food for my soul. That was my experience growing up of having a mom who was absolutely amazing. And when I think about what she was able to do, she, had, she was 38 years old. She had four kids under the age of 11, two of them under the age of two, making $14,000 a year. And she was able to, just, just being able to, to do every day in that situation was amazing. And there's so many things that I could say about her that just would give you a, a, a tremendous picture of the woman. But I had a mama who taught me determination. And she did it by her life's example because she was able to put one foot in front of the other until she completed her job. She taught me to give all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength to everything I do, to every relationship, to every task. And it's my pleasure to reflect the life she taught me, to reflect how she trained me. I remember when we used to take the bus, and when the bus would get crowded and I was sitting down, she would just look at me. And I knew what it meant. It meant get up and let that lady sit down. It's like, damn, I, she, she should have been here first. That is what I was thinking. But I'd get up and let the woman sit down. And I still do it. And I still do it. Why do I do it? I do it in honor of my mom. Because she trained me 
how to treat people. She was amazing. And so every interaction I have, one person at a time, her training of me is reflected. So if you've met me, you've met my mama. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, the Bible tells us this. It says, honor your mother, which is the first mandate with a promise attached. What happens if you honor your mom? Well, it will go well with you. And what does that mean? You'll have a prosperous life. And so that you may live a long life on the earth. God extends the years. God extends the days and the years of people who honor their mother. And so to mothers, we honor you today. We thank you for your tireless work, the tireless service of doing one of the hardest jobs there is, the job of nurturing and raising the next generation. And by the way, some of you, as you hear this, are in that process. And you may think, well, I haven't been that good a mom. You know, I always think about that. You know, what kind of dad was I? And I judge myself based on one criterion and one criterion alone. Are my kids believers in Christ? If your kids are believers in Christ, you have done an amazing job. Because you know that you have invited them to eternity in face-to-face with the Lord. And that's amazing. So judge yourself that way. But if you are in progress, don't be hard on yourselves. Because about six years into my fathering, one of my friends came to me and told me, that in, in essence, I'll just shorten the conversation. He said, you're a jerk as a father. And so I really appreciated that he said that, but I was also thinking, yeah, but I get 21 years to perfect it. And I so I've got 15 years left. But I really took seriously what he had to say and made the adjustments that it takes to be a great parent. So if you're in the progress of parenting, it's never too late to decide what kind of impact you want to have on your kids. And if you have the impact that you have invited them to Christ, then you've done an amazing thing. Now, they, you can lead them to water, but you can't make them drink, right? You can bring them where they can hear about Christ, but you can't make them drink. That was not my philosophy as a parent, though. My philosophy was that kids are like horses. You know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them, make them drink. Yeah, you can. You take the horse's face, you shove it in the water, you lift its tail, and you suck like hell. Now, it's pretty uh, distasteful for both the horse and you, but they're going to drink the water. Well, I don't think that's, that's probably my, me six years into parenting. <laughs> that was probably me six years into parenting. I got a little more sophisticated after that. So to mothers, we honor you today. We thank you for your amazing service. We ask you to judge yourselves based on how you're leading your kids to Christ. And, and we hope you have an amazing day because you're amazing people. Let's listen to a tribute to you. It's called Song, to, Song for Mama by Boys to Men.
So we've got some nice little gifts for the mamas in here, uh, courtesy of one of the most thoughtful people in the congregation, Denise Jones. And uh, just really thank you for that. You know, I was, uh, whenever I hear that song, I just go through this whole series of things, a whole series of pictures in my head about my mom. And one of the pictures that appeared is my mom uh, began as a Baptist and then she became a Catholic. You know, that's jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. And uh, I remember sitting in, in the car with her one time, and uh, it was the time after I, I, I've always been a Christian. I started out as a Christian at eight years old, but then became a Catholic. And I remember sitting there with her, and I said, Mom, how do you get to heaven? And she was not very emotionally demonstrative, so she, she'd always have this blank look on her face. You know, somebody just want to go, is anybody in there? <laughs> but she said, you have to believe in Jesus Christ. I said, do you? She said, yeah. I said, well, what do you believe about him? She said, he's God. I said, good, you passed. But can't wait to see her in heaven. That's going to be the longest hug in eternity. I think we're going to spend most of our time in, uh, in eternity crying with appreciation <coughs> for how amazing our God is. And we're going to see a lot of people that we know are there. We're going to be surprised by some people who are there. It's going to be a really excellent party. Let us pray. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Father, we're slow to learn. But you knew that before you created us, and you decided to create us anyway. You decided to give us the time required to grow in your grace and knowledge. And you did that because you trust yourself and you trust your plan for us. So thank you for your provision, your protection, and your presence in our lives. Help us, Father, to be a sterling example of the way you are mother and father to us. Help us to reflect your training and your example in every moment of every day. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Today's Bible lesson, what's the real problem with sexual immorality? What's the real problem with sexual immorality? Well, today we bring to a close our study of the sixth chapter of the Apostle Paul's first letter to the believers at Corinth. And let's get right to it. Uh, Now, by the way, the end of the first six chapters... Uh, 1 Corinthians is brings to an end our digging up of the problems that were going on among the believers in Christ in the church at Corinth. And the next 10 chapters are going to be Paul's recommendations about the solution to those problems. So we're still, we're just finishing up today the digging up of the problems. Now the believers in, Cor- in the Corinthian church were making excuses for their immoral behavior and especially their engagement in sex for hire, prostitution. And it was males and females. It was adults and children. And they found nothing wrong with consorting with prostitutes. But Paul tackles the problem directly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. So here are those verses 
And I, I noticed this week as I studied a couple of adjustments. So you'll see a couple of adjustments in this week's verses versus last week. So here, let's begin at 1 Corinthians 6.12. It says, You Corinthian believers say, all things are permissive are permissible for me. What they were saying is, hey, I have free will, and because I have free will, I can do anything I want to. Kids learn this at 18 months old. And we call it, as parents, we call it the terrible twos. And what's terrible is they say, no, I won't. At 18 months old, they figure out that they are separate beings from you and that they can make their own decisions. And they, of course, are very verbal about that when they're under your roof, not paying any rent, not paying for groceries and everything. They got a big mouth. They're running their mouth all the time when they ain't providing anything. Amen? And so, you know, my, my solution to that when I had kids, I just punched them in the face. You know, it's so funny when you punch people in the face how you get their attention. You drive the septum of their nose right up into their brain. It makes the tears come out. It's just a beautiful thing. And then all of a sudden you get their attention. Amen? Yeah, I didn't really do that. I said that to myself. <laughs> what I said to them is, I know, uh, you know, children and family services wouldn't want me to treat you poorly, so I'm just going to be patient. <laughs> uh, then I pull their hair or something. Anyway, you Corinthian, <laughs> Corinthian believers say all things are permissible for me, but I, Paul, say that not all things that are permissible for you are beneficial for you. You Corinthian believers say all things are permissible for me, but I, Paul, will not be mastered by anyone or anything. And when you are buying sex for hire, you're being mastered by something. Another way to translate this that I think is really powerful is, I have liberty to do anything, but I will not let anyone or anything take liberties with me. That was a powerful way to put it. And I love that. The believers in the Corinthian church were like college students away from home for the first time. They had lost their heads after Paul left Corinth after an 18-month stint there for Ephesus. And they blended back in with the world culture of the first-century first Corinth. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Instead of being the shining light and the beacon in that situation, God planted that church right in the middle of Las Vegas, the Las Vegas of the first century, so that it could be a light to the rest of that area, and they went off the reservation. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. You say, you Corinthian believers say, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. They were talking about appetite, and they connected sexual appetite and food appetite together. And one day, God the Father will do away with both the stomach and food. So what they were saying, in essence, is that the body is irrelevant because all God cares about is our soul and our spirit. Your body, I, Paul, say, your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for your body. Yet the body is not for sex for hire. It's the Lord's possession. The, the Corinthians erroneously suggests that the appetites of the body, whether for sex or food, are always okay. And God disagrees with that assessment. Christianity is a lifestyle God designed so that everything would go well with us. I don't believe you heard me, so I'm going to repeat that. God, Christianity is a lifestyle that God designed so that everything would go well for us. Do you even think like that? 
Do you even think that everything could go well in your life? Do you even think like that? Do you think that you could win every game you play? Do you ever think like that? You don't. But that's the, the life God designed for you. Well, why don't you believe it? Because Satan is telling you that that's not realistic. And so now you're very realistic people. What's realistic about Christianity? What's realistic about God embarrassing himself by taking on the form of a human being, living a perfect life for 30 years, having a perfect three-year ministry, and going to a cross to die for you in your place when you should have gone and died for you so that you could be saved and so that you could be reconciled to his father? What's realistic about that? Nada. That's Spanish for nothing. Amen? There's nothing realistic about Christianity. It's ridiculous. That's the life God has planned for you. A ridiculous life, not a realistic life. I don't even let people around me say realistic. You say realistic, I snatch your throat out your, out your body. Amen? You feel me, dog? <laughs> I don't want to hear that word. So, so the, the Corinthians were realistic. They were natural. God is supernatural. It can't, Christianity cannot be dumbed down to a lifestyle of right and wrong. And that's what most people do. They turn Christianity into a morality play. Oh, I did the right thing. Oh, I can't believe I did the wrong thing. If you can't believe that you did the wrong thing, you aren't looking at the evidence because you do the wrong thing most of the time. That's the way you actually learn. You actually learn by making mistakes. But what do we do when we make a mistake? We pull out a rubber hose and start beating that. Oh, I can't believe I did that. Why? Why can't you believe that? You've done it 20 times this week. Why can't you believe you did something wrong? But did you learn from it is the issue. And it's not, did you learn from it does not mean, did you learn not to do it again? You will do it again. But every time you do it again, will you learn? You know, if, if making a mistake is like this. If you're driving... And you lose concentration for a minute, you hear a noise, right? Woo, 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 woo. Well, what do you do? You pull out a rubber hose and start beating yourself because you drifted out of the lane? Just get back in the lane. Now, are you going to do that again sometime in your life? Yes, you are. And if, if you don't think you are, you're lying to yourself. People always tell you, oh, I'm sorry, and I'll never do that again. You're lying. You will. You'll do it next week. Learn. That's the thing. Learn from it. Learn from it. Amen? All right. So the Christian way of life can't be dumbed down to right and wrong. Is there right and wrong in the Christian way of life? Yes. And you're going to do both. And it can't be dumbed down to a lifestyle indulging in sin as the licentious and lascivious would have us do. And licentiousness is no restraint. Lasciviousness is sexual immorality. That's not the Christian way of life. The Christian way of life is pretty boring when you get right down to it. I was walking through my house this morning and I was thinking, you know what? God always keeps me safe. There is no trauma in my life. I live in a world where there's just junk. Last night at the Mesa Police Department, somebody was brought in because they killed somebody. If somebody got in an accident, all this trauma happens in, in Mesa and in Gilbert and Phoenix 
all night long was going on all around us. None of it hit my house. Amen? Why? Because there's, a, there's a, a, a dome around my house of protection. Because God cares about me. He has a plan for my life. He protects me. He provides for me. And he's present. And it's the same exact thing for you. And you don't even think about it. You don't, you don't understand. Why is it that I can walk around my house and nothing is touching me? Because God's got protection around you. That's not what's happening in China. I have friends in China who, let's see, what time is it now? It's 9 here, so it's Monday morning at, at, at 12.35. But, you know, 12 hours ago, they were sneaking around to worship Christ. And hoping they didn't get caught so they didn't get put in jail or killed. You don't have to do that. And, of course, they're not getting put in jail or killed because God's got a, a bubble of protection around them, too. And especially them. So, the believers at Corinth were legalistic, were lascivious, and it bothered Paul. God is concerned with your body and your soul and your spirit. Paul wanted the Corinthian believers to be concerned with all three as well. And to be concerned with how their conduct in the body affects those who might want to believe in Christ, but see no benefit if they think that Christianity is the same as being in the world. Being a Christian is not the same as being an unbeliever. It's not the same. And see, this is where religion goes wrong. Religion is always settling for a part of the picture. Let's take the Jehovah's Witnesses, because I have some Jehovah's Witnesses in my family. All right, so they believe in Jehovah God. They believe in God the Father. I do too. But then when they talk about Jesus Christ, well, he's the Son of God, so Jehovah's up here and the Son of God is down here. No, he isn't. He's here. They're the same. I and the Father are one, Jesus said. And then the Holy Spirit's like an electric force. No, he isn't. He's right here. He's in charge of our sanctification. Co-equal, co-infinite, co-eternal. But what do they do? They settle for part of it. They dumb the other two members of the Trinity down. You can't dumb them down. They're omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, just, sovereign, loving, immutable, veracity. They tell, always tell the truth. They're eternal. You can't dumb them down. They're righteous. Can't dumb them down. You can talk about it. 1 Corinthians 6.14 To demonstrate the importance of the body, God the Father has not only raise the Lord Jesus Christ's body from the dead, but he will also raise believers in Christ's body from the dead through his divine power, omnipotence. I have a lot of friends who are Seventh-day Adventists. And so the, the essence of being a Seventh-day Adventist, the Adventist part means they believe that Christ will come again. Correct. Then the seventh day is... The Sabbath never changed. It's on Saturday. False. False. The Sabbath was part of the age of Israel. We're in the church age. Today, the Sabbath is every day. Hala. <laughs> every day is the Sabbath. And 
the the interesting thing about my friends who are Seventh Day Adventists is they believe in this body concept, and so they they pay a lot of attention to what they eat, and they want to preserve their body so that when God resurrects the body, that it'll be in pretty good shape. Yeah, that's not what's going to happen. See, you're either going to get burned or you're going to put in the get put in the ground. If you get put in the ground, you're going to be fertilizer for daffodils. And what God is going to do is take your body and make it supernatural. It's called the resurrection body. He doesn't need our help. Boy, we just don't get that. So what does God do? He turns our body of weakness, our current earthly tent, which will be torn down into an indestructible resurrection body that will survive the blast when he destroys the earth and the universe as we know it and creates the new earth and the new universe. And that's described, this resurrection body is described in the Bible as a building from God. And I'd say God cares about our bodies. In fact, the whole Trinity cares enough about our bodies to indwell our bodies. Amen? Resident in you are all three members of the Trinity as a church-age believer. 1 Corinthians 6.15. And here Paul punches him in the face. Six times he uses this expression in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know? Ook is the most strong negative. Do you not know? What are you, ignorant? Are you paying attention? Do you remember what I taught you? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? What does that mean? That at the moment of salvation, you are placed into union with Christ. Has anybody ever told you that as a believer in Christ, you can lose your salvation? Has anybody told you that? They're insane. At the moment of salvation, you are baptized by God the Holy Spirit, and that means you're placed in union with Christ, and you can't get out. There's nothing you could do to get out of God's grasp. But you want to believe that crap. You want to believe, why would you want to worship a God who would give salvation to you and then take it back? Do you even like human beings who do that? Who give you a gift and then take it back? Or give you a gift and then criticize you because you don't use it? Do you even like people like that? Why would you ever like a God like that? I wouldn't. Well, isn't it great that he's not like that? (laughs) It's so good. Once you're in fellowship, you can't get out. Why? Because he knows how goofy we are, and he set up his program with perfection. That's the only way he works. He's perfection. And he said, I'm going to give them this resurrection life, and I'm not going to let them lose it, because if I let them lose it, they would. And now you're placed in union with Christ. That's what Paul is talking about here in the strongest possible terms. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ in union with him? Shall I then take away the members of Christ from his possession, your possession of Christ, and make them members of a prostitute, letting them become one flesh with evil? May it never be. This is unimaginable. Amen? Sex with prostitutes contaminates your body and simultaneously contaminates your relationship with the Lord. Freedom without authority is anarchy. Freedom without authority is chaos. And it puts our souls into chaos. 
master your body with your will or it will be mastered by the flesh. And let me tell you something about the flesh. It has a lot more power than you do. And I always, I always laugh when people talk about losing weight. And they say, well, I'm going to lose weight. And I know it just takes discipline. B.S. You don't have any. You don't have any discipline. It takes learning how the body reacts to food. That's what it takes. And your body reacts a certain way to food that you put in it. And if you don't know what that is, you're going to be fat. Amen? Amen? Come on, fatty. Say it. Amen. <laughs> I've been fat for most of my life. Right? The belly. Because no matter what, I, I'd work out. I'd be looking all good up here. You know, i come in. Oh, that, look, that looks tight. That looks really. Oh, hell. <laughs> you look at that belly. That belly's out there. Well, why? Gut health. That's what I'm studying right now. Gut health. How do you get that belly off of you? Oh, it's just sit-ups. No. If you do sit-ups, there'll be muscles under that fat. If you don't learn how to get that fat off, you'll be fatty. Amen? We got to learn. Amen, Betty. <laughs> and the flesh is more powerful than your discipline. The flesh has a will that's stronger than your will. Ah, but you have a secret. You have a supernatural secret. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? Yeah, take that flesh. The flesh is going on the ground anyway. 1 Corinthians 6.16. Or do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her, a wedding without wedding vows? For he, he says the two shall become one flesh. The two shall be fused. Sexual union changes people. Union with Christ at the moment of salvation changes us. Union with Christ is not compatible with union with a prostitute. You cannot take Christianity and mix the world into it. Every time you try to take Christianity and mix the world into it, Christianity rejects the world. But it doesn't stop you from trying. You keep trying to put the world in the bowl. God bets that stuff. Get that out of there. That's over there. This is over here. You are not mixing. And it takes us years to learn that. That's why we live so long. Because as adults, we're not smarter than kids. Kids, you tell them something, hey, don't put your shoes on the table. They figure it out. Okay, why not? Because every time I put my shoes on the table, mom slaps me in the back of the head. I'm not going to put my shoes on the table. Kids figure it out. Adults don't figure it out because mom's not there anymore to slap them in the back of the head. It gets really quiet once you get 21. And nobody's telling you what to do. Then you actually have to make your own decisions. First Corinthians 6.17 In contrast, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. There's the choice. Join yourself to a prostitute. Join yourself to the world, which is the biggest prostitute. Or join yourself to the Lord. As believers in Christ, we're not only one flesh with Christ, we're one spirit with him. And that is a double whammy that is on our side. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. 6, 18 to 6, 20 is a unit unto itself. Here we go. A command. Flee immorality. 
What is God saying? Don't do it. See, God is full of do's and don'ts. And it's not, he's not about right and wrong in that matter. He's about this works and this doesn't. Flee immorality. Why? It doesn't work. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body except for sex for hire. A sin that man commits where he sins against his own body. It's the equivalent of taking a blowtorch and burning your skin on a regular basis. It's that equivalent. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is indwelling you, believers in Christ, whom you have from God the Father, so you are not your own? It is a temple. Here's the temple, the bowl. You are not going to put anything in the temple that's going to ruin the temple. God's not going to let you. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you believers in Christ have been bought with a price. You are a possession. Therefore, a command, glorify God in your body. Do this, glorify God in your body. Don't do that. Immorality, sexual immorality. God's really clear. Sexual immorality will not be effective for you. It will hurt you. Glorifying God in your body will help you. Make your choice. Christians have an identity. We are sanctified, set apart for a set of privileges that would stagger the imagination. And that demands holiness and sexual purity. Well, you don't generate the holiness. God gives it to you. The sexual purity part, you got to make a decision. The point of this passage is that sexual immorality in any form, especially in the form of sex for hire, is worse for us than the other sins. Why? Because there are, there are many human reasons why sex for hire is a bad idea. It's either fornication, which is premarital sex, or adultery, postmarital sex, or sexual infidelity, both of which God thinks is not best for us. Sex for hire objectifies a person. You make the other person something to be used instead of seeing them as a person. Sex for hire makes you one with evil. Therefore, it erodes your soul by uniting you in one flesh with a rebellious one. It's the equivalent of a believer marrying an unbeliever. Somebody who is not rebellious marrying somebody who is. It is a melding of personalities. What if you thought that? What if you thought when you have sex with somebody else, it melds your personality with theirs? What, did you, what would you think about that? You've got to ask yourself, do I want a personality like that person? And a lot of times the answer is no. Sex for hire often funds criminal activity like sex trafficking, selling children for sex. That happens now, but in the first century, that was rampant. Kids didn't even, nobody even liked kids. Still don't, really. Sex, <laughs> just kidding. Sex for hire obliterates your standards. And what, what does that mean? It obliterates your standard. It convinces you that it's all good. Sex for hire offers a destructive career path, brothels, or strip clubs that foster treatment of the victims. I'll never forget the first time that I was in a strip club in Taiwan. One of my customers took me to a strip club, but it wasn't a strip club. It was disguised. What do you think it was disguised as? A karaoke bar. 
So what do they ask me? They didn't say, Rory, you want to go to a strip club? They said, Rory, you want to go to a karaoke bar? <laughs> Absolutely. So I love, shut up. I'm a good singer. Shut up, June. So I'm at the karaoke bar, and I'm having a blast. I'm kind of laughing because in, in Asia, the karaoke bars, they, don't, they make the translation of the words, and they don't get it quite right, so you get a little laugh every once in a while. But here I am, and I'm singing karaoke, and these waitresses keep coming in and asking me if I want to order anything, and then they're snuggling up to me. I'm kind of like, come on. I'm, uh, pretty soon I'm wondering, I came to doubt you. And then another one comes in, and she's kind of snuggling up, push her away, and then finally a third one comes in. And I said, okay, I feel like I'm in the middle of the movie. Why do you guys keep getting all up on me like this? And the girl said, well, the other two girls said you didn't like them because they don't speak English. What? And so this lady explains to me that this isn't really a karaoke bar, that I can make a deal. So I get curious. I start, I, I, I'm playing dumb, like, a deal? You know, I just play dumb, and she explains the whole thing to me. Here, legitimate businessmen go into these karaoke bars, but it's really a house of prostitution, and they can make a deal. And it turns out that the girl was a Christian, the third girl. And so I said, well, what do you think Jesus would think about you doing this job? And she starts crying. And now she starts telling me her whole life story. It's like, I just want to sing. Would you go away? And so she tells me the whole thing. And she said, I said, well, how much do you girls make? She said, the ugly ones of us make $15,000 a month, U.S., How are you going to talk somebody out of that? The ugly ones of us make $15,000 a month, U.S., and it appears on these business guys' credit card as so-and-so karaoke bar. And their companies pay for it. Yeah, that's real life, people. That's real life. That's real life. That's what we're talking about here is if, if this was too impersonal for you. If you think I'm just talking about some ancient world stuff. That's happening today, right now. It's 1 in the morning in Asia. This is happening right now at 1 in the morning in Asia. And then those guys who are doing it come back home to their wives. When they have melded themselves with a prostitute, 1,800 miles away, or however far it is. I'm not a geography person, so you can figure that out. Melding of personality. Sex for hire often funds criminal activity. Sex for hire obliterates your standards. Sex for hire offers a destructive career path that fosters mistreatment of the victim. Sex for hire transmits sexual diseases. And you know what? The thing about having a... a, 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 a a sexually transmitted disease, isn't the getting the disease part. That's the easy part. The hard part is explaining to every person that you, you bring into your life after that that you have it. That's the hard part. It's embarrassing. Sex for hire can result in pregnancy. When engaging in sex for hire, the person that you're interacting with may be married and have a family. While engaging in sex for hire, you could be killed. 
the person's spouse could come in, surprise, see you doing it, and kill you. Sex for Hire promotes a do-it-yourself mentality. Sex is the one thing you can't do yourself, no matter how good you are at stimulating pseudo-sex. Sex for Hire destroys authority orientation and sponsors confusion in the mind. Sex for Hire cancels exclusivity. That's why he cheated on me. She cheated on me. What's the real complaint there? The real complaint is we're no longer exclusive. A fox has been permitted into the hen house. All of these human reasons would be enough, but God has a single and best reason, because God works in ones. Sexual immorality destroys unity. It destroys unity with the Lord. It destroys unity with others. It destroys unity with your own body. The Lord doesn't want to destroy us to destroy ourselves in this way. Now, we're talking about the truth. And if you got your rubber hose out during talking about the truth and started beating yourself up, then you don't understand Christianity. Because Christ went to the cross to pay for these things. All he wants you to do is learn from it. He doesn't want you to, every time you sin, beat yourself up. Because if you do that, you're beating yourself up 250 times a day, amen? Me, two or three times a day. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) So, that's one of the reasons why sexual sins are so prominent on Satan's menu for us. He knows That they destroy unity. Satan hates unity. He knows how devastating the effect is of these particular sins in our lives. So flee sexual immorality. When we return from our five-minute break, we'll take the offering, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Take a five-minute break. Why you ever chose me? It's always been a mystery All my life I've been told I belong At the end of the line With all the other not quite With all the never get it right But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time Cause I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody All about somebody Save my soul Ever since you rescued me You gave my heart a song to sing I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus Moses had stage fright And David brought a rock to a sword fight you picked 12 outsiders nobody would have chosen And you changed the world Well, the moral of the story is Everybody's got a purpose So when I hear that devil start talking to me Saying, who do you think you are? I say, I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody All about somebody Who saved my soul For the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living 
Welcome back. Today's Bible lesson, what's the real problem with sexual immorality? What's the real problem with sexual immorality? We just saw that part. Uh, In Luke chapter 12, verse 48, the Lord says this, From everyone who has been given much, such as believers in Christ who have received a so great salvation, much will be required. Matthew chapter 10, verse 8 says this, Freely you received, freely give. The Lord has given his believers access to unlimited assets. Our time, our talent, and our treasure are to be used for the Lord's benefit, not merely for our own enjoyment, and for the benefit of the world around us, including the unbelievers in our periphery. We appreciate your generosity very much, and you have been very generous during this time. And We thank you, and we assure you that it is being directed to the Lord's work. The best things in my life, are coming up, and the best things for Broad Ministries are coming up. Let's welcome up Deacon Denny Goodall with the offering message. Good morning. My name is Denny Goodall, and I'm blessed to be a deacon for Barah Ministries. Barah Ministries is a worldwide Christian church where real people come to listen to a real pastor teach the real truth from the Word of God. And as we've been going through 1 Corinthians and hearing Paul kind of tell us what to do and what not to do, kind of, he kind of seems like he's very motherly, you know, and he's kind of telling us about how our body is a temple and that the Holy Spirit is, is within us as a temple, and he's always guiding us. And it really makes me think, make a connection between moms and the Holy Spirit. You see a lot of moms are helping their kids, they're loving them selfishly, like Pastor said. They're training them up, they're planning for them, they're protecting for them. They're, a mentor, they're mentors for their kids. And they can actually grieve. Kids can grieve their moms. They can get moms very angry. And moms are great because they're so loving and so forgiving, and they just keep trying and trying and trying. And, you know, where fathers wouldn't. They would, you know, mothers will. <laughs> Fathers say it once and they get angry and they're like, I'm out of here. And moms will just keep going after it, you know. And my, my wife is a teacher and she's been doing great doing homeschooling for our kids. Now, I don't know about our, our home barber shop's not doing so good, but kind of just took it all off. But, you know, I, I really just think that moms, moms deserve a lot of credit for what they do for kids, just like the Holy Spirit is kind of... You know, he's hidden. We don't really see him a lot. It's kind of how moms are. They're in the background, and they're always saying, you know, just giving their kid another chance and <clears throat> really teaching their kids that it's about choices in your life. You can make choices for God's will or choices for the world's will. And you know at the end of the day, if you make any choices for God, it's going to turn out great. You might have some hardships, which we're always going to have hardships, but any choices you make for God are going to be great. You know, and so... You have a choice later in life. Are you going to go to karaoke or are you going to give to God? You know, are you going <laughs> to... You know, I mean, I've never been a karaoke fan, so I, I wouldn't have gone. So was, I'm lucky that way. You know, the devil's sneaky. He knows how to get at people. And so, you know, it, it all boils down to a choice. And the choice is just like at the offering. You know, are you going to give your time, your talent, and treasure to, to a ministry of God? Or are you going to give it to the world? And it's really easy to give it to the world because there's so many fun things out there to waste your money on. And it's, it's, really, it's really difficult. And it, it often looks, you look silly when you give to God. You look silly when you give a lot of your earnings to God or you spend a lot of time learning about God. But it's the most important thing we can do in life. 
And it's truly important to bring others along so that they can have that relationship with God and learn that it's not about work and it's just about saying yes to God's plan. And it's just like the same saying, when mom says something, just say yes. It's much easier. So thank you, moms. Have a great Mother's Day, and we love you all. Oh, I I forgot my verse. I got so spun up on moms. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by means of the one, God the Holy Spirit, we believers in Christ were all baptized into one body, the body of Christ. Whether Jews or Greeks, regardless of nationality, whether slaves or free, regardless of social class. And we're all given one spirit to drink, God the Holy Spirit, who indwells us. And that's really how I feel about moms are. Moms indwell us. And you will never know what it's like to be a parent until you have kids. So, you know, the love of a mom is really something that should be cherished and definitely appreciated. So thank you. Thank you, Deacon Denny. Appreciate that. The Lord's Supper celebration at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ covered our sins with forgiveness. At the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ covered our sins with forgiveness. So welcome to the Lord's Supper celebration, the most intimate expression of love for the Lord Jesus Christ in the Christian way of living. The Lord demonstrates his desire for a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with his believers by creating a way to keep on sharing his body and blood with us, just like he did with his apostles the night before his death. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 16 say this. 
When the hour had come and his crucifixion was near, the Lord Jesus Christ reclined at the Passover table and the apostles reclined with him. Luke twenty-two fifteen. And the Lord said to the apostles, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Luke twenty-two sixteen. For I say to you that I, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall never again eat this Passover meal until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God the Father. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, the Apostle Paul says, On behalf of the Lord, as often as you eat this bread, representing his body, and as often as you drink the cup, representing his blood, as part of the Lord's Supper celebration, you proclaim as a reality and you announce the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead until he comes again in the second coming. The Lord's Supper celebration is a time when resident members of Barah Ministries join hands through the miles with our non-resident members, and we demonstrate our unity by remembering the Lord together. And I, if uh, my friends up in the Pacific Northwest didn't hear the announcement yet, just want to say hi to John and Monica and to Mary and to uh, Harold and Cindy and to Kara, if she's up there with all you guys. Our hearts are with you, and we really appreciate that you're listening in, and we're happy that you're together listening in, because this celebration is a celebration of unity, and it's a celebration for which we set aside time. We don't do it on the move. And during the Lord's Supper celebration, Jesus wants his believers to look back to the cross for a moment. In the rest of the Christian way of life, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, but at the Lord's Supper, we look back for a moment to the cross. And every time we see a cross, it ought to tell us some amazing things. He wants us to remember how he rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. He wants us to remember the sacrifice of shedding his blood to cover our sins because your apologies, your guilt, and your feeling sorry do nothing to sin. The only thing that wipes sins out is Christ shedding his blood to wipe them out. On the cross, he wants us to remember the deliverance to the resurrection life he orchestrated, bringing us out of darkness into his kingdom of light. And most of all, the Lord wants us to remember and look forward with anticipation to the fact that he is coming for us again. He's coming for us at the rapture of the church, which will be the divine event that ends this age. And he's coming for us again in the second coming. Only we as church age believers will be with him at that time. And we will come and watch what he does at his second coming. And that's going to be an amazing thing. As believers in Christ, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we ask ourselves in reflection... What did the Lord Jesus Christ do for us at the cross? When you look at that cross, what did he do for us? Well, today, at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ covered our sins with forgiveness. Now, I don't want my use of covered to confuse you because what Jesus Christ did before the cross for the Old Testament believers is he covered their sins until the cross would happen. So that's not the covered that... I'm talking about here, probably the better word would have been to smother. He has smothered us with his forgiveness at the cross. That'd be a better way to say it. But that smothering has completely eradicated every sin you have ever committed, past, present, and future. They were credited to him instead of to you. They were judged, and they have been forgotten forever by God. 
And even though you don't forget your sins, and even though your relatives don't forget your sins, and as a matter of fact, love reminding you of all the things you've done in your life, which were horrible. That is not God's attitude towards you, nor is that the way he operates. Our earthly parents, if they are immature, inculcate faulty ideas into us that we readily adopt and willingly believe. And one of those ideas is the evaluation of everything from a standard of right and wrong. If you've ever played golf, you know, there are people who hit, hit a ball and maybe they hit it to the right of where they wanted to hit it and it goes in the grassy area and they say, ah, oh, that was a bad shot. Yeah, there was, a, there was a young lady in the congregation that I played golf with one time and her whole judgment of her golf game was strictly a right and wrong judgment of her golf game. So every time she hit a bad shot, which was 95% of the time, then she'd be pouting and stomping around. Amen? <laughs> Sorry, I had a bad flashback just now. But that's what we do, as opposed to hit a shot, and it's just the shot. And every shot that you hit and where it lands gives you a unique challenge. Oh, look, I hit it in the sand. Now I have the unique challenge of getting it out of the sand, which I just bend down, pick it up, and throw it. It's really an easy thing. So our parents, if they're immature, inculcate this right-wrong mentality into us or this success and failure mentality into us. And, of course, most of the things we do are failures, so then we're beating ourselves up all the time. Another faulty idea is that mistakes must be accompanied by shame. The old ladies in my neighborhood growing up used to say to me all the time, Boy, you ought to be shame yourself. And I, I said to one of them one time, she said, Boy, you ought to be shame yourself. I said, I should be ashamed for breaking Miss Johnson's window? That was a home run. I'm not, I'm not ashamed of myself. That was amazing. I know I have to pay for the window, but I wasn't ashamed at all. The Lord does not require us to feel shame for our mistakes. His forgiveness is absolute. His forgiveness was accompanied, was accomplished for our benefit at the cross. And the result is we stand forgiven forever. In fact, the sins you will commit tomorrow have already been forgiven. How's that for having an amazing God? Forgiveness from the Lord comes from who he is. It comes from his very person. It's not just something he does. Boy, you ought to be shame of yourself. I'm not. I'm forgiven. I was pardoned in the past. I am saved right now. And God's peace permeates me forever. And this is a peace that is your possession as believers in Christ as well. And when you really get to know the Lord, you get to know how thorough and how magnificent his forgiveness is. Luke chapter 7, verses 37 and 39, verses 48 and 50 tell the story. Here it is. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now, typically when you see the word sinner in the Bible, it's a reference to unbelievers. And that was certainly the case here. But here, the case was also, she was a prostitute. And for some strange reason, prostitutes were always hanging around Jesus Christ. Well, why? 
Because they needed to be saved. That's why. Because Satan prompted them to. That's why. Because Satan just wanted, all he needed Jesus to do was make one mistake. And he wins the, con- the, the conflict. Jesus didn't make any mistakes. He's perfect. Can't be tempted. And so there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. June, I swear to you, if you have my alabaster box on the song list next week, I will hit you in the face. I know it did. I, I, I hate that song, but that's one of your favorite songs. Do not put that in. Just helping you out right here. Luke seven thirty eight, And standing behind Jesus at his feet and weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she kept on wiping his feet with the hair of her head. And she kept on kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Luke 7.39, now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. See, there's the prostitute inference. And see, the Pharisees were so funny because they were these self-righteous guys, and their favorite thing to do was to go to prostitutes. Yet every time they saw a prostitute around somebody, they had just automatically assumed that, that this person was doing what they were doing, and that's what they assumed about Jesus. And it just wasn't true. Luke 7, 48. Then Jesus said to the woman, Your sins have been forgiven as an established and irrevocable fact. See, that's something you can't see in the English, but it's the indicative mood in Greek. And the Bible has to be translated from the, its original language. And in the Greek, it says, your sins have been forgiven as an established and irrevocable fact. Irrevocable meaning it can never change. Once God does a thing, it never changes. Luke 7, 50 And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Faith in what? Faith that Jesus Christ is God. The woman was saved not because of her love for the Lord, which she was expressing in tears. Her sins weren't forgiven because she loved the Lord. She loved the Lord because she was forgiven just as we do. Do you forgive like the Lord forgives? Because the Lord forgives the worst of us and the worst in us. Do you forgive like that? Have you ever tried it once to forgive somebody like that? Well, here's what the Lord had to say as he hung from the cross. Imagine that now crucifixion is the worst death ever. As you hang there, the the joints and ligaments are getting all kind of pressure. It's the pressure of your weight. And then all of your organs are collapsing on themselves, so it's hard to breathe. It's hard for your heart to beat. Here he is hanging there, the worst death in the history of mankind, crucifixion, a death reserved for the worst of criminals, which he was not falsely accused as being. And what did he say? Luke twenty three thirty four. Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for crucifying me, for they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, unbelievers never know what they're doing. And what they were doing was crucifying the Savior of the world. 
And what he did is use that crucifixion to pay for our sins. What an amazing God we have. Even while Jesus was dying for all mankind, he was still being sneered at. He was being mocked. He was being ridiculed. And he kept on doing what he had come to the earth to do. He saved the whole world. He forgave us all for everything. Luke chapter 15, verses 20 and 24 tell us that God the Father has the exact same unmatched forgiveness, unmatched versus humans, for sure. Here's what it says, Luke 15, 20, the prodigal son, and prodigal means the wasteful one, the wasteful son got up and came to his father after squandering his inheritance. But while the prodigal son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Luke 15, 21. And the son said to him, the ridiculous and emotional thing that sons who have blown it say when they have taken out the rubber hose and they're beating themselves. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father was thinking, what are you talking about? Once a son, always a son. What are you talking about? This story isn't about the sons. The sons were knuckleheads in this story. This story is about the father. What was the father's reaction to a son who had taken his inheritance and completely blown every penny of it? What was his response? Luke fifteen twenty two. The father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a signature ring on his hand, which is the checkbook. Put sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate. You can tell they were black. There was a barbecue. Amen. Now, the way you might, the way you might think they're not black is because of the checkbook thing, because my son ain't getting the checkbook. Amen. <laughs> Luke 15, 24. For this son of mine was dead. And now he is alive again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Our picture of the Lord's true character often is faulty because it has been distorted by a liar who deceives us and who seeks to rob us of our victory in union with Christ. Yet even God's enemy is forgiven. Even God's enemy is forgiven. Satan, the enemy of God, who's perpetrated every dirty thing that you can imagine against God, is loved unconditionally by this amazing God. Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 say this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Romans 4, 8, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Why doesn't the Lord take our sins into account? Because our sins were credited to his account. As a result of the Lord's forgiveness, we are liberated. God's forgiveness liberates. Satan's shame paralyzes us. What are we to be grateful for as we celebrate the Lord's Supper? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, namely, that God the Father was in union with Christ, reconciling the world to himself. He was the Father who we were on the wrong side of a barrier, and he opened his arms to welcome us. He first sent his son, which none of you would do, sent his son to die for you and to pay for every one of your sins and then opened his arms and welcomed you back. Checkbook and all. Barbecue and all. Amen?
God the Father was in union with Christ, reconciling the world to himself and not counting our trespasses against us. And God the Father has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And when God gives you his word, it's a guarantee. It can never be, never be taken away. Guarantee. For those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, we are no longer the targets of God's wrath. What is God's wrath? It's the lake of fire. For people who reject the relationship with the Lord, they will be living all eternity in the lake of fire. And they will experience God's wrath. And I guarantee you that is something that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. But it's not God's will that any should perish. It's everybody's individual will. They make a decision for or against Christ. If you make a decision for or against Christ, it's the worst decision you could ever make. We are reconciled. And what that means is the Lord removed the enmity, the absolute hatred between us and his Father. So let's enjoy the Lord's Supper elements. Let's remember Jesus in the way he told us to remember him. Obeying the Lord's command, we keep on celebrating the Christ and his cross regularly. We eat to remember who he is as a person. We drink to remember his work on the cross, the voluntary sacrifice he made to deliver us. We remember with gratitude what God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ have done to save us. Matthew chapter 26 Verses 26 to 28 said this, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take this and eat. This is my body, which is being broken for you. And then when he had taken the cup and given thanks, Jesus gave it to them, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's listen to the Lord. Let's keep on eating this bread and drinking this cup in his memory. Let's keep on being transformed by his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, and his word. And as we enjoy the elements, let's reflect on the Lord's gift to us at the cross. Let's listen to the song, All Good Gifts, from Godspell. We plow the field and scatter the good seed on the land, but it is fed and watered. By God's almighty hand He sends the snow in winter The warmth to swell the grain The breezes and the sunshine The soft, refreshing rain All good gifts around us
Well, one thing that, you know, pastors have to make decisions about what they stand for at some time in their lives. And one of the things, the things that I stand for are always reflected in the lessons. And one thing I stand for is Jesus Christ. And another thing I stand for is the accuracy of his word. And so when I'm talking to you about different stuff, I'm not standing up here giving you my opinion. I'm giving you God's opinion because God has an opinion about everything and his opinion is perfect. Mine is quite imperfect, so I would not waste your time by giving you my opinion about stuff. And the third thing I stand for is that nobody who comes to Barah Ministries can leave here and say that they never got a chance to hear exactly what it takes to get to heaven. So we close our lesson today, like we always do, with an exhortation to you and a reminder that God wants you. And what God wants from you is he wants you to make the most important decision of your life. And the most important decision of your life is that you would have a personal relationship with the sovereign God of the universe, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want you to know that God wants you. And my question for you today is, is religion the way to be saved? I have been in religions for 50 years of my 65. And so I study them quite extensively. And I can tell you that religion is not the way to be saved. Many people believe that religion and its rituals is their ticket to heaven. And so they embrace religious beliefs that tell them how to live a spiritual life. And the religion claims either that there is a God, small g, or that there are many gods. I have a lot of friends who are Hindu, and they believe that there are 8,000 gods. And I always ask them, which one are you worshiping? Holy smoke. I mean, I, I, I have difficulty worshiping one. I can't even imagine what it's like to worship 8,000. But the religion doesn't discuss how to have a personal relationship with God. In fact, religion proposes that if you don't do everything there, God expects that he will be quite disappointed. And regardless of your best efforts to follow religious rituals, which you can't do, and you know you can't do, the religions don't even guarantee that if you do it, that following the rituals will get you into heaven. That's one of the things I hated about being Catholic. If I do this, will I get into heaven? Well, it's a mystery. I, you know, I don't know. Well, why do I have to go to purgatory? If Christ paid for my sins at the cross, why do I have to go to purgatory and have an additional cleansing of sin? It's a mystery. No, it's not. It's stupid. Well, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, the Lord is talking to a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman whom the Jews wanted nothing to do with. And after a brief introduction, the Lord says to the woman, everyone who drinks of the water in this well will thirst again. John 4.14 But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, the water of the word, the gospel message, shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to the resurrection life. It is the Lord's will that those with whom he has a relationship live with him in heaven forever when they close their eyes in this life. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say this, This is what's good and acceptable in the sight of the God who is our Savior, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who desires all men to be saved and who desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. The truth the Lord wants us to know about how to be saved, about how to get to heaven, is that it is as simple as a nine-word conversation with God the Father. And when he was hanging from the cross, he was not only concerned with us being forgiven, but he was also concerned with the two thieves that were hung on either side of him, that were being crucified on either side of him. Luke chapter 23, verses 42 and 43 say this, And a thief being crucified next to Jesus was saying, the nine magic words. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Luke twenty three forty three. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. A friend of mine was telling me yesterday that her mother, who was a Roman Catholic, had a deathbed conversion that she became a believer in Christ at the last minute in her life, just like this thief did. And that's amazing. See, that's an amazing God who would allow that to happen. And her mom didn't get up off her deathbed and then go keep the sacraments. Her mom didn't get off the deathbed and get dunked in a tank of water. Her mom believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and she was saved. In a just single moment of time, she took the words, Lord, the, the, the Lord's word for it, about what it took to be saved, and she was saved. Just like this thief did. He lived a horrible life, a life of theft, and then in one moment in time, nine words saved him. Absolutely amazing, from, uh, an amazing thing from an amazing God. Just nine words can get you to heaven. Just, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Or if you prefer, five words. Father, I believe in Christ. Or, if you prefer, I believe, help my unbelief. Another five words. Or two words, I believe. Simply believe, merely take God's word for it, concerning what it takes to be saved, and that is the moment of eternal life for you. Who is this God that saves you? The Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. And we'll study this soon, but two of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible. I, Paul, deliver to you as of first importance the gospel message I also received, that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now this Paul we're talking about is a guy who for the first half of his life was absolutely dedicated to wiping out the Christian church single-handedly, and every day when he got up, he killed men, women, and children who were Christians. And then one day, it wasn't satisfactory for him to just kill the Christians in his area. He got permission from the chief priest to go to an area outside of where he lived and bring them back to be killed too. And so he was headed to Damascus, and on the road to Damascus, God knocked him off his high horse. And he recognized the Lord immediately and completely changed his life in a moment in time and then went and ministered to the people that he absolutely hated, the Gentiles, because he was a Jew. That's how supernatural things work. That's how amazing God is. 
Now, once the Lord saves you, no matter how hard you try, you can't lose your salvation. I don't believe you heard me, so I'm going to say it again. Once you are saved, no matter how hard you try, you cannot lose your salvation. John chapter 10, verse 28 says this. I, the Lord Jesus Christ, give the resurrection life, eternal life to believers in Christ, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. Am I afraid of death? Absolutely not. What would I, why would I be afraid of being absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord forever in a place of no more sorrow, no more tears, the old things have passed away, behold, new things have come, a place exceeding and abundantly beyond anything I could ever ask or think? I ain't scared of nothing. I ain't scared of no flu. <laughs> Amen? So once the Lord saves you, you can't lose it. Anyone who tells you that you can lose your salvation is lying to you. On the other hand, if you reject the relationship offer of this God who doesn't want you to perish, he will honor your rejection. Matthew chapter 13, verses 49 and 50 say this, So it will be at the end of the age. The elect angels will come forth and take out the wicked, a description of unbelievers, from among the righteous, believers in Christ. And the elect angels will throw the unrighteous into the lake of fire, the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know what weeping weeping is, you know what that is. There's a lot of crying. Would you know what gnashing of teeth is? Oh, oh I was nine words away from being saved. Oh nine words that dictate your whole eternity. So follow the advice in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, which says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and everyone in your household who also believes. You feeling me, dog? Are you feeling me? Tell me! Are you feeling me? All right then. 20 years from now, you won't even remember what I just told you. You react to it. You say, yeah, I believe. Lord, remember me when you come in your king. You won't even remember you were here. But you'll be saved. Amen? Amen. All right, so it's not religion that gets you to heaven. It's a relationship, a relationship with the one and only God, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, Let's finish with some music. There are many things that can be taken away from us or that we can lose. Our health, our wealth, our earthly lives. But one thing that cannot be taken away from us is what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us at the cross. Here's June Murphy to sing about it in her song, You Can't Undo the Cross. From the moment you believed You were indwelled by the Trinity You were saved by faith and grace God's plan Baptized by the Holy Spirit You were made new, you were made perfect And you cannot be snatched from His right hand You can't undo the cross You can't Work Christ has done 
what you say No matter the mistakes you make You're still saved for an eternity Nothing can separate you From God's love faithful and true No hide nor death Nor principality You can't undo the cross You can't unfinish The work Christ has done You can't undo the cross And your salvation can't be I'm so happy. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) All right, let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we just appreciate you so much because it's so good to know that there's always somebody that is completely surrounding us with protection and provision and a plan and presence. And we know that you have us all the time. And that we can relax in your arms and in your grace. We just pray that we're worthy of that by sharing that with all the people in our periphery who haven't yet made a decision to have a relationship with you. For all the people who've been turned off by church. And we pray that you help us to help them understand that there's a difference between church and you. And that they shouldn't be turned off to you because they're turned off to people into a building or an institution that may or may not be on your side. And we just thank you for everything you do. And we ask you that as we go out into the world this week, that we keep our attitudes positive, that we remember that we've been delivered to the victory already, that we are overcomers, and that no matter what the world 
sins to us, you've already delivered us from it, and it will unfold and be apparent to us all the blessings that you have in store for us because we love you. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, in Christ's name. Say it with me. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming, thanks for watching, and thanks for listening. Come on, give a brother a hand. You gave Denny two hands. Why can't a brother get a hand?